Tackle Talk, the men's health podcast. Three guys tackling all things men's health head on. This is the next installment of the Ask a Urologist podcast. And this is a special podcast because we've got a couple of guests that haven't been on the show before. And uh, I'd like to welcome Addie Lambo. Hi, Addie. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Very excited to be here. And my good colleague and fellow urologist, Shane LaBianca. Hi, Shane. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, Yeah, hi, Andrew. Hi, Addie. It's good to be here, finally. Yeah, it's good. Um, Now, look, I think we have to address the elephant in the room a little bit here. It's a bit mean, isn't it? The Kenyan elephant, in fact. (laughs) Or would you rather be a rhinoceros? Not even Kenyan. Oh, you're not uh, Kenyan, Somalian, um, Nigerian. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a myth. <laughs> but I mean, there's two urologists on this podcast, uh, and, yeah. but there's but and there's but one, one one real doctor, one real doctor. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go through the banter of whether you should call yourself a doctor or not. Please don't. Just don't go calling yourself a doctor on an aeroplane. <laughs> no, I've made that yeah, mistake. Exactly. I've made. I've made- I've made that mistake once and never, never going to do that again. But, yep, so, yeah. So why why would somebody whose um, main topic of research be coral and seagrass is interested in male genitalia? Oh, that's a good question, Andrew. I guess I've, I've got male genitalia, so inherently well. I think it's something, <laughs> it's something I'd be interested in. But primarily I'm just interested in, in learning about new things and, you know, you're a good friend of mine. And I thought this would be a great way to spend an evening oh, that's talk, nice. talking about penises. Well, you do bring some sort of veneer of professionalism to this because you actually have done a podcast before. Very thin veneer. I do. Yeah, I've done several actually. Yes. Well, that's like a thousand percent more than us. So, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> we're off. We're off to a good start already. So, so you're going to bring the quality. We're- and the, and the lay person's perspective on yeah. what is, admittedly, like you know the the dark corners of medicine where a lot of people just don't want to go. Yes, that's right. Exactly. So I'm exactly right. So last time on our podcast, we talked with my colleague Trenton Barrett about vasectomies, and and I'm sure that that was uh, you know provided a lot of great information. But today we're really getting a little bit up close and personal because we're talking about a condition called Peyronie's disease, which for people who are not aware of that is, what is it, Shane? It's, uh, it's really unfortunate when it happens because it's, it's, uh, it's a bent penis or a, or a curved penis that doesn't go where you want it to go. And it's pretty common, isn't it? It actually is. And I think part of the reason why we're seeing it now is because uh, GPs are asking questions to patients about sexual function. There's a lot of guys who've had treatments for other conditions where one of the side effects is sexual dysfunction. So it's something that's sort of brought up in the follow-up conversations with their treating doctors. And I think younger guys are generally a bit more comfortable talking about stuff like this with their doctor because they're perhaps a little bit more aware of what rightly or wrongly is normal based on media um you know youtube and other you know sites i guess 
it's it's one of those conditions where I'm sure it's underreported because it must be you know men it must get pretty bad for men to to go to their doctor about it. It's an embarrassing sort of problem. Yeah, I I, I think it is. I mean, when whenever a patient says to me, "Is this common?" because they think they're the only person who's got it because, of course, they haven't talked about it with their mates because um, they just don't. Um, I say to them, yeah, well, look, at you know, it's it's a big part of my practice and I, I'd estimate it's probably around 10% of the male population really? um, have an issue with, uh, with curvature and angulation, whether that's actually clinically significant. For some, it may and for some, it may not be. Because it's not usually the sort of thing you sit around and talk about. I mean, Eddie, do you sit around and talk about that with your mates? I wouldn't. I wouldn't know ordinarily. But if I had, if my penis was bent to the point where it was actually causing me to sort of, you know, for it not to function in the way I was. We're talking to. like a sh- like a sh- like a horseshoe. <laughs> yeah, I, that, have you seen yeah. that? <laughs> I mean, it, that's how bad it can get. Yeah, absolutely. Turn back on itself. Exactly right. I mean that's my point. So if if it was that if it was that bent, surely it would it would it would be sort of beyond the issue of embarrassment. You would just be compelled to go speak to your doctor because you wouldn't be yeah. able to function. I mean, yes, you know, so I, I would imagine. I, I would imagine that the, the perhaps the cases that are perhaps underreported are, are sort of slight curvatures. I don't I don't know. Is that is that the case? Yeah. If you have a, if you have a really really bent penis, surely you're going to your yeah. GP. Well, they're coming. Aren't they shame because there's some problem with the function? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and look, some of them do. You know, I've had I've had a lot of guys who turn up, and I ask them when did they first notice it, and they say it came on suddenly. And you know, the guy's got a penis that's bent in a horseshoe, untouching his belly button. Um, you kind of think, well, that couldn't have just happened overnight. Yeah. But some of them do, I guess, not want to take notice of minor curvature and then you kind of get used to it i guess and it yeah. probably get has to get to a point where it stops it from working for your partner before you think there's a problem with my penis you kind of i suspect some of them are kind of in a bit of denial before they get to that point um and of course there's the other thing too is that you know i don't think really most men know what a a normal penis looks like because really the 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 sort of um the, the urban myth, the social myths about what a penis should look like are based on uh, the pornography industry. Mm. The, the normal penis isn't really out there unless, you've, um, unless you're sort of in the medical field, if you know what I mean. So we've talked about what it is. Um, what would you say is like a normally acceptable curvature angulation of, of an erect penis? Yeah. That's a good question, isn't it? Because, yeah, what is normal? Um, I think you've got to look at it from the point of view of reflecting back on function. Normal is whatever allows you to penetrate um, comfortably for both you and your partner. And that depends because if you are a – if you have a heterosexual relationship – um, a curvature, say, let's say up to 30 or 40 degrees upwards, for example, might actually not make much of a difference at all because of the um, shape of the, the orifice you're putting it in. Let's make an assumption you're having vaginal sex. Um, you know, the, the vagina's got a certain shape that can accommodate 
varying widths and girth uh, lengths and and that of the penis. So that could be fine. But I've got patients who um, are at the other end of the spectrum are homosexual and rec- uh, and um, anal intercourse is important for them and for those guys. Uh, to a certain extent, any degree of curvature is kind of really difficult. So if you take everyone, I normally say that anything up to about 30 degrees is probably functionally tolerable for most purposes. Can can I just jump in here, Andrew? Shane, what about, you know, putting sort of intercourse to one side, what, what about just urination? I mean, there's other functions that, you know, you need your penis for, you use your penis for. What about yeah, just, just, it probably what about just going to loo? Yeah, it probably doesn't have that much of an impact except yeah. in two circumstances. And one of them would be guys who've got Peyronie's who have a lot of shortening, who oh. might still have a foreskin, for example. And then all of a sudden, as they're getting older, they realise their foreskin's getting longer, their penis is harder to find, and they struggle to actually get it out and pee. That's the first scenario. And the second scenario is the guy who's got quite significant curvature that when he wakes up in the morning and wants to go for a pee and he's got a bit of a hard on, he actually finds it difficult to have a pee because he kind of can't pee through a semi-erect penis because it's pointing up to his left shoulder, if you know what I mean. So urination usually isn't a big issue, but in those two circumstances, it can actually be a problem. And I've had patients complain about that. Well, Certainly the shortening one is a, a big factor. This kind of goes back to um, my uh, background reading, which I did for this podcast, you'll be glad to hear, is that, um, I mean, let's talk about why this is called Peyronie's disease. Yeah. Peyronie was uh, Fran- Francois de la Peyronie, mm-hmm. Francois Guigeroux de, de la Peyronie, and he was the right. physician to Louis XV who was one of the longest serving right. kings of France. Mm-hmm. And um, he became quite an interesting guy, actually. He became a surgeon at a very young age, at the age of 17. Wow. And back in those days, you may already know this, Eddie, but... Is that when surgeons were basically... They were a bit basic. B- butchers? They were, well, they were surgeons and barbers. That's it right. It was the surgeons and barbers, you know, yeah, and yeah. and the reason yeah. why... Um, and, and being a surgeon really meant just saw, sawing off people's limbs when they became (laughs) infected or, you know, from military injuries. Leeches. And the reason why barber poles are that red and white diagonal stripes is because that's how they used to dry the bloodied bandages that wrapped them around a pole outside. So that's when you knew knew that was the surgeon barber's workshop. Yeah. Um, And But but this guy was, um, he was one of the first people to actually, in France at least, to Peroni was one of the first people to, uh, approach surgery as a as a field of medicine. So it wasn't wasn't really associated with uh, the medical field or the scientific field. It was real sort of um, science. It was a trade, really. You know, yeah. like you basically hack, yeah. hack people's limbs off. And um, no joke, he developed an obsession with phalluses. Now, it might be part <laughs> of being a doctor in the French court, and we yeah. all know they were out, outrageous pervs. Yes. Those guys, they, yes. were, they were basically, yep. you know, very, very into their sexual um, activities. activities and, yeah. and uh, Absolutely, yeah. And Sex was a big thing and so was syphilis. And, um, <laughs> y- you can imagine that uh, one day maybe Louis or one of his courtiers said, hey, f- hey, Francois, hey, Doc, um, i got a little problem down below. You mind taking a look? Yeah. 
And he, he actually described it as as a disorder of ejaculation. So it was when it got so bad, the fibrosis got so bad, um, and we'll talk about what the actual cause of the condition is, it got so bad that it was blocking ejaculation and that's what this first patient mm. presented to him with. Yeah. And so he – So he must, yeah, he must have had a pretty severe yeah. plaque. Well, yeah. he examined these people and then he – some of them died and he actually did autopsies on them and and described in quite a lot of detail, <clears throat> anatomical, um, scientific detail, the actual problem. So what actually is happening to cause this, Shane? Well, yeah, aside from that acute problem that prevents you from having a pee or, having, or ejaculating properly, um, essentially you've got well, imagine you've got, what I say to patients is imagine you've got a pair of uh, sausages and the skin of the sausage is keeping the inside in, in a particular shape when blood fills that. And with Peyronie's disease, the skin is abnormal in areas that cause it to thicken and scar. And when you get an erection, it tends to bend in the direction of that scar. Um, it's a bit like when you cook sausages and they curve. Oh, yeah. Have you ever noticed how when you you always put sausages on the on the barbecue and they're straight? Yeah. And they always curve, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah. That's well that's true. because if they've got if they've got natural skin, so if they've got if they've got um, intestinal skins as opposed to artificial skin, then along one edge there's a thicker band where the blood vessels would attach to the gut. And that bit contracts more than the rest of the sausage skin does. And therefore, they bend towards that. But just to be so it's clear, exactly the same principle. We're talking about when we're talking about the skin. We're not talking about the skin of the penis. We're talking about the not talking about the skin. That's the right. We're talking about the coat. internal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's almost like a casing on the inside. That's right. Yeah. So the structure, yeah. if you and, if you took a cross section across the penis, God forbid, um, would be there's yep. there's two big cylinders which are the cavernosal bodies which are the erectile tissue and then there's one yes um tube running below them in the midline which yep. is the urethra which carries the urine yep and the semen um so That's what's right. what's covering those what's encasing those those tubular structures yeah so you've got well you've got on one surface you've got lots of nerves and blood vessels and you've got uh, another layer of what we call connective tissue, which is kind of like another sleeve. And then you've got the tissue beneath the skin, which is often a sort of thin fatty layer, and then you've got the skin. And Peyronie's is a disease process of both the casing of each of those cylinders, but also part of that surrounding sleeve, uh, which is underneath the nerves and the blood vessels. And that's why when you see patients with Peyronie's, the nerves and the blood vessels in cross section are sitting above the disease process, so and there's it's an important similar, thing to yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry, there's a similar disease process which happens along the tendon sheath in the hand, isn't there? Yeah, named after yeah, exactly. another so Frenchman. Yeah, Dupatron. Yeah, it's Dupatron. It's a that's Dupatron right. contracture or a trigger yeah, finger. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's usually affecting your your ring finger and your little finger, but it can affect all of them, but it tends to be the gripping fingers. And there's even a third condition, which is in the feet, called plantar fasciitis. Oh, yes, I, so, am, I am aware of that one. Yeah. Runners. Yeah. 
So they're all they're all conditions of connective tissue that is designed to be extremely tough, yeah. but very flexible. And the abnormality in the sort of pathophysiological terms is a failure of the healing process within that tissue after an injury to re-establish the same structures that were there before, namely a strong but flexible uh, tendon in the case of your feet, uh, sheath in the, ha- in the case of the, f- the hands, and corporal tunica in the case of the penis. So what then happens is you get dysfunctional healing and scar tissue forming that distorts the natural stretch of that tissue. Well, so Shane, what what actually causes this? So you've, we've talked about sort of what it could look like and 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 a bit of the anatomy components, but how does yeah. it, how does it happen? Yeah, well, most most patients don't report a injury, but. There's two theories. One is um, the theory of, of, of macro trauma, which is where patients will have an injury of some sort, where they've basically fractured the penis. So that casing is put under extreme tension when the penis is erect or semi-erect, yeah. and that casing cracks, which means it ruptures, and then you get trauma, traumatic healing um, and scar tissue forming. But the other theory is that it occurs as a result of uh, gradual loss of erectile rigidity as we age. Uh, related to multiple conditions such as diabetes, heart disease, vascular disease. And those situations are where the erection is not 100%, which means it suffers some sort of distortion, twisting, concertinering, um, or bending that leads to micro tears in the tunica. And then as that tries to heal, it doesn't heal properly because the underlying disease process is what caused the erectile dysfunction in the first place. And so then when it heals, it heals with scarring, which then exacerbates the primary cause. And that's why we often see erectile dysfunction at the same time as Peyronie's. It's sometimes, you, you know, sometimes you'll see a guy who comes in with, with a, a strong erection and it's just got to bend. But then you'll see more often than not, I see guys who've got a degree of erectile dysfunction as well as a bend. Okay. Yeah, then it becomes a bit difficult to figure out which is causing which. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, it's um, that sort of from a pathological or pathophysiological perspective, um, it is a bit of a, a, a curiosity as to which one's you know first and which is second. But from a practical treatment point of view, it's sort of less of a problem because you treat both conditions in the same way with the same medication right. um, as yeah. a general rule. And so you fix one to try and help the other. Okay. Um, and that's why, that's why surgery isn't the first thing we think about when we see a guy with Peyronie's disease. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a quite a good um, point to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to go through the various phases of presentation of Peroni's disease and just what we can do to treat it. So stay tuned. Tackle Talk, a men's health podcast, is proudly supported by Perth Urology Clinic, Western Australia's largest urology practice. All right, so we're back on the Ask Urologist podcast talking about Peyronie's disease. And you've got two urologists plus someone who's interested in talking about Peyronie's disease. (laughs) And uh, just before the break, we covered the perversities of the 18th century French imperial court. We talked about the, you know, pathophysiology of this condition and how it's related to the anatomy but um, Shane, just from a practical point of view, what's the typical guy who presents with this disease? What does he look like and, and what does he complain of? He's, um, he's about 50-something. He's 
a little bit overweight. Uh, he may or may not have been a smoker. And he's presenting with uh, change in the shape of his penis that has finally got to the point where he and his partner are not sort of able to have sex um, easily. Um, but there's a spectrum, really, isn't there? I mean, you know, I've seen I've seen twenty year old guys come in with it, and I've seen seventy five year old guys come in with it. I've seen patients come in with uh, severe pain in their penis when they get an erection, but nothing in the way of a deformity or a change in the shape. And I've seen guys who uh, present with uh, um, very significant shortening of the penis and scar tissue that's almost turned into bone and prevents them from being able to get an erection because wow. it's it's stopping their penis from stretching. So if you think of um, if you think of inflammation as a disease process, then inflammation has certain phases. So it often will have a painful phase which then changes into a phase where there's deposition of inflammatory tissue and swelling and then you get this sort of gradual move towards resolution of that and replacement with uh, slow or chronic inflammation and scar tissue. And that's common for a lot of different organs and the penis is no different. So, you know, I'll often have a patient who comes in and when I, they come in with a bend, but when I ask them the history, they say, oh yeah, 12 months ago, I started getting erections that were painful and I'd wake up at night or in the morning and it'd be really sore. And then I noticed a little bit of a lump and the lump wasn't painful, but it was just sort of a bit tender to touch. And then, then all of a sudden it started changing shape and it became more bent and funny and I, and, and I got to this point. So there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of variation in how men present and each of those phases, if you like, can vary in time. So patients can have pain for you know, a few weeks up to several months even. I've had patients who've had it for one or two years before they finally then had a change in the physical shape or um, alteration in the features of the penis. And how does um, the way that you treat them or approach them differ based on the mm. phase of their presentation? So for someone who's coming in where there's a short history and there's still a lot of pain and tenderness and um, they think that the curvature is getting worse versus someone yep. who said, oh, it's been like this for two years and it hasn't really got any worse. Yeah. Uh, I'm just sick, sick of it. Yeah, it's um, – Managing expectations is the most important thing because obviously they'll have two different perspectives on what they want to achieve. The guys who've got painful erections, um, they want the pain to go away so they can still have sex. Um, and part of the problem, of course, is if they continue to have pain, then they don't have sex, which means they don't have as regular an erection. And if they don't have as regular an erection, then the underlying process can potentially be facilitated because... Well, what happens when you have an erection? Your penis stretches, doesn't it? So it's its own natural sort of physiotherapy. Um, and if you're not getting erections, then you don't get that stretching process. So any inflammation that leads onto a scar in the absence of regular good erections will tend to be exacerbated. So so the goals of therapy are to maintain function and alleviate symptoms and is there anything you can do to sort of arrest the process or stop it getting worse? So what sort of tools do you have at your disposal there? Yeah, we've got um, 
Well, there's a lot of things you can do, and they all kind of go back to the same principle, which is uh, maintaining uh, as normal as possible a physiological sort of erectile pathway. So I say to patients and I say to guys and I say to their partners, look, erections might not be too bad, but the underlying process is related to the way the erectile tissue and the penis functions. So the first thing we have to make sure is that you are facilitating or promoting the best possible erection you can have. So if you're a smoker, that means stopping smoking. If you drink too much, it means cutting back on alcohol. If you're a diabetic who's got poor diabetes control, it means start focusing on your diabetes. So they're they're general things. Then you look at, well, how do you make your erections better? And there's two types of erections. There's your erections that happen at night that are just sort of physiological. And then there's the erections that happen when you get aroused. And you have far more nighttime sleep-related erections than you would normally have arousal erections in the 24-hour cycle. So I say to patients, look, taking a medication that's going to stimulate your nighttime erections at a, at a sort of basic level is really important. So that's why we use medications like Viagra-type drugs, but in very low doses, so that it helps to improve the nighttime physiological erections. And some of them also notice they get improvement in their daytime erection or arousal erection as well. And then if pain's a component, then treating the pain with both anti-inflammatories as well as simple analgesics like paracetamol. And then there's also medications that help to improve blood flow in the tissues of the penis separate to the drugs like Viagra and that which act on the specific erectile pathway. Um, And they're drugs that simply open up blood vessels and they're they're a different group as well. So it's really a combination of all these things. And I I generally will start patients with early Peyronie's or evolving Peyronie's on those medications to try and subvert or prevent the, the process from getting worse. And normally that's something that we try for three to four to six months to see if it helps. That's great. Shane, would, would that be the same, that, that sort of treatment pathway that you just talked about there, would that be the same for someone who's who's also had that that sort of initial trauma? You talked about two ways of this happening, that real trauma being an accident or, or something else. Is that the same type of treatment yeah. that you would suggest? Yeah. In fact, it's probably even more important, isn't it? Because there you've got a definite cause and effect. And if you allow the natural healing processes to occur, yeah. Uh, given the underlying pathology, you're you're probably going to get a worse scar than if you try and promote better healing. Um, And of course, if you've got a scar that's forming and the erections are not that frequent, then the penis is not stretching, which means it's staying in a sort of shortened, flaccid state. And when the scar forms, it tends to contract. So the theory goes, try and stretch the penis. Yes, I've never heard of that. So erections as a form of physiotherapy. I love it. I'm I'm going to keep that in mind. Well, you know, that every every guy that I see who doesn't turn up with his partner, yeah. he says, so do I need to have more sex? Yeah. And I say, yes, that's right. You need you need more erections. But, Eddie, this doesn't mean you have to go down to the physiotherapy clinic with those young ladies and start talking about this. You'll get no, thrown I, out straight away. I think I'm more no, liable to be is, arrested. Exactly. Yes, no, we, do not, we do not recommend I've that. Just never heard, I've just never heard of an erection. Classes for the therapy, it's fantastic. 
Well, I mean, it's uh, it's part of a normal physiological yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, you know, it makes sense. Particularly um, when Shane was talking about plantar fasciitis, which is something I've had, you know, a lot of runners do, mm. and, I'm, I'm not, and I never really thought about that in the terms of the connective tissue getting pulled. So. Well, that's right, because yeah, if if you've got plantar fasciitis and you stop running, yeah, it it'll probably heal up, but you'll then have a problem when you start running again. Yeah, yeah, it's it's terrible. Yeah, exactly, and that, exactly, yeah. Accurate, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in in, it, in all other phases of um, rehab, where you've got the risk of uh, scar tissue and contraction of fibrous yeah. tissue taking place, the rehab aims to stretch it out and prevent those contractures from happening. So yeah. it's it's yeah. just another part of the body that has collagen. Basically, that's what we have to yeah. think about it as. Exactly uh, right. So, um, how does let, let's move on? So you've 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 treated this guy. In the acute phase, um, you've given him some like Viagra or Cialis type medication. These are called PDE five or phosphodiesterase five inhibitors. They promote That's right. the release of uh, a compound called nitric oxide, which improves um, endothelial or blood vessel relaxation, allows oxygenated blood to go through, flushes out the yep. uh, deoxygenated blood. All of that's important in uh, combating. Yep. Uh, inflammation and anti-inflammatory effect. What about anti-inflammatory drugs, analgesics? How do, do, do they have a role? I think so, yeah. Well, especially if someone's got pain, I think that's really important. Um, whether someone needs anti-inflammatories if they don't have pain is debatable. Um, I think I usually suggest that rather than taking an anti-inflammatory, which is fairly potent and has potential side effects in terms of gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. Um, I usually say to patients, if they don't have acute pain, that one of the sort of supplements that might assist with the healing process is something like curcumin or turmeric. Um, it's been used a lot in Eastern uh, Ayurvedic medicine for many, many centuries. Ayurvedic. It has, that's the one, yeah, Ayurvedic. Ayurvedic. I always get stuck on that one. <laughs> I thought that was good. But I think it's, um, yeah. <laughs> but into, I think it's, um, his, uh, complementary therapies. Very much so. Yeah, they, <laughs> oh, hot yoga. But I, <laughs> but I think it's, um, it's, it's probably something that I, that can be easily taken and probably has benefits beyond just Peyronie's disease in terms of, uh, systemic anti-inflammation, but it also might have some anti-fibrotic effects and um, it may even have some analgesic effects. So it's quite a good supplement with very few harmful side effects, except if you can't tolerate curry particularly well and that might be a bit hard on your oh, stomach. But shame. aside Every, from that... Everybody should be eating curry. Oh, <laughs> Turmeric tastes great. Everybody, come on, everyone should be eating curry. It's my favourite meal. Yep. My yeah. wife will tell you that. She and says, then um, curry again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then as well as turmeric um, or curcumin, there's also some other supplements that you can throw into the mix. And one of them is um, acetylcarnitine, which is an antioxidant, going on the principle of free radicals that are harmful in the sort of deoxygenated blood that sits in the penis when it's not actively erect. Um, so taking an antioxidant may help. And Certainly when you look at the studies that have been done on drugs for Peyronie's disease, acetylcarnitine, curcumin, and another one called L-arginine, which is very similar to 
Cialis and Viagra, they've been shown to have some potential beneficial effect. So, you know, nothing better than saying to someone, I want you to take drugs, but I also want you to take supplements because they, they kind of think that you're really sort of, you know, on the ball oh, with, a, uh, you know, complementary medicine. Yeah, you're a real holistic <laughs> pr- practitioner. Got all the That's right, yeah. and fans out there very excited. Yeah. Um, what about vitamin right. E? I used to uh, believe that that was, had, had some scientific evidence behind it. Yeah, look, vitamin E is an interesting one. Um, so theoretically, vitamin E has uh, antioxidant effects. So that's why you take it. But the problem is there's not that many, not that many good studies that have shown that it has uh, a significant benefit. And one of the problems is the dosing. We don't really know what dose to give um, in terms of vitamin E. Vitamin E creams have been tried, um, you know, topical vitamin E. Again, the absorption's variable. Doesn't, we don't know if it actually gets into where it needs to go. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of it, but if someone says they want to take vitamin E, I say go for it. Uh, you know, it's an antioxidant. So theoretically, yep, the same theory. It just hasn't been studied quite as well as the um, the other ones. Um, and there are certainly a few other things that have been tried um, in terms of medications um, and not just tablets. There have been a few other sort of injections that have been trialled, um, uh, external physical therapies that have been trialled. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there, but the data is not robust insofar as... Um, you know, good evidence to show that it makes a big difference. And I'm talking about things like shockwave lithotrips, shockwave therapy, um, injection therapy with anything but one particular drug. We'll get onto that later. Um, and uh, um, and uh, vacuum devices that just stretch the penis. There's, there's limited evidence that they work well um, in this particular situation, Peyronie's disease. Yeah. So I guess the other side of things is the the psychological effect of this condition and, um, you know, it's going to make guys pretty anxious and depressed. So in that acute phase, what sort of things do you tell them, you you know, give them a a bit of a sense of perspective and and hope, I guess, in terms of, you know, how many people are actually going to, you know, stabilize and improve? Um, over yeah. time uh, versus people that will need to go on to the next phase, which we'll talk about um, in a second. Yeah. I, I would estimate that about a third of them get some response to all of the oral therapies. So that means that they get some response that gets them back to a, a functional shape that allows them to perform. Um, and about a third sort of don't change much from when you see them. And that may well be that group that um, have sort of been have got through the process, if you like, and they're at the end of the line, so nothing's changing. There's no active yeah. disease. It's just it's just solidified. And then you've got those guys, unfortunately, who are at the very early sort of phase of an aggressive inflammatory process, and they don't respond very well. And they can be really difficult. They can have migratory plaques, or um, you know, they feel the lump one day in one spot, then the next day in another. Their penis goes from being bent upwards to bent downwards. Their erections come and go. So there are some guys who've got you know really bad erectile disease that's adding to the Peyronie's, and and they can be really hard to treat because um, they 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 they're very they're very despondent because it's getting worse despite what you're doing, and. Um, yeah, they're hard to deal with. Um, you know, the other guys you can kind of cajole along and 
and you can encourage them and most of them will see some improvement and if they don't see an improvement it doesn't get worse so at least that's good yeah. um but yeah it, it can be tough because especially yeah. the younger guys the guys who are coming in in their 20s and 30s who who thought they were normal and all of a sudden their penis is just you know doing strange things on its own we're going to talk about now the most difficult types of cases that um Shane comes across, and these are the ones that develop quite significant deformities which are causing significant functional problems. So, Shane, how do these present? Yeah, well, look, there's there's quite a number of them. I, it's probably the easiest way for me to talk about them is perhaps present a couple of individual cases because they do represent the sort of the spectrum. Um, one of them's a 20-something-year-old engineer who presented with Peyronie's disease and um, sort of multiple nodules in his penile shaft that were causing his penis to essentially be wonky in multiple directions. And um, his disease wasn't stable at all, despite medication. He was, he was, you know, I saw him at sort of monthly intervals and he was basically getting plaques that were developing and then disappearing and developing and disappearing. And really, each one of them was really painful. And we tried pretty much everything with him. And in the end, the the underlying problem that he had was that he had a failure of the normal mechanism of his erection, such that the tissues of his penis were not normal. And um, he eventually came to have a penile prosthesis put in to try and essentially prevent his penis from continuing down this pathway. Because eventually what would have happened is it would have just scarred down into a sort of very abnormal sort of rectal tissue uh, length. And he's had an, a penile implant put in, and effectively what that's done is it's it's taken away his natural erections, but it's stabilised his penis in terms of shape. And so he now has a penile implant inside the penis, which keeps it at the same length, and he mechanically pumps his penis, and it works really well. So that's, um, that's a sort of, a, if you like, one of the severe inflammatory cases, if you like. Maybe um, if we should just briefly describe for our listeners and Eddie, who's looking very perplexed, yeah. <laughs> what a penile yeah. implant is. I was, I'm glad you uh, picked yeah. that up, Andrew, because I was just about to ask yeah. what is a penile implant. Okay, so so you think of implants, and the first thing that people think about when they think of implants, they think of breast implants, okay? So yep. a breast implant is placed inside the breast tissue to recreate the shape of a natural breast, albeit a little bit larger than what was in there before. And it's made of silicon and it's filled with a fluid. So you can also put implants elsewhere. For example, you can put a hip, artificial hip in, and the artificial hip replaces the bone of a normal hip joint. So it's got a socket and it's got a ball on the end of a stem and that replaces the natural anatomy of the hip joint. And all of these things work like the organ they were meant to be before. They're not perfect, but they work very similar like that and give it function back. And so a penile implant is a hydraulic device that essentially sits inside the natural hydraulic or blood vessel tissue of the penis. So if you can imagine, we talked before about the whole idea of the two sort of sausages of the penis. Well, if you can imagine that inside those sausages, you put a silicon cylinder that fills up with water expands in a little bit of length and girth to create the same sort of shape as a penis and that's connected to tubing that allows you to take water from a reservoir 
put it into the cylinders and pump it back out when you've finished with your erection. So it's a, a penile implant that replicates the hydraulic function of the penis. It's wow. fully enclosed inside the body um, and guys basically reach down to the pump, which is sitting in the scrotum. They squeeze on the pump as if they were squeezing on one testicle, but they're squeezing on the pump and the pump moves the water around. And does that water just go around? That, that's like a closed circuit? Yep. Shane, it, and it closed circuit, yep. doesn't ever need to be f- yep. flushed or anything like that? No, it goes no, it's closed circuit. Wow. The body seals it off and it stays there for as long as the implant material uh, retains its integrity, which is variable depending on how much you use it. But normally we say to patients it's something between sort of five to 12 years, depending on how often they're having sex, basically. Is, is that like just any, a saline? Or yeah, it's a saline-filled um, cylinder, basically, yeah. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, th- th- this probably deserves a podcast all its own. But well, how, um, how do you deflate mm. it? So once you've pumped it up, how does, yeah. it, how does it go yeah, it's down? Got a little, it's got a little deflate button. So it's got a pump that you squeeze the water mechanically. And then it's got a little uh, little button above, which is a valve. And you press the button, which reverses the valve flow and allows the penis to empty out. Okay. Well, look, that, 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 mm. that's fascinating. So you, that was that was one of the examples. You said you had another. So that was a 27-year-old engineer. What about, what about the other? Yeah. Example? Yeah. So another guy that I did recently was a guy who'd um, – he, he'd been seeing doctors for a while about his Peyronie's disease and I don't know what it was, but I don't think anyone had really examined him properly. And he kept on saying to them, there's something there and the doctors kept on saying to him, oh, you take this, take that, or saying, well, there's nothing you can do about it, blah, blah, blah. And he eventually came to see me and when I examined him, he had quite a significant shortening of the penis because of all the scar tissue. But what he actually had in the, the top of the penis beneath the nerves and the blood vessels and not replacing, but almost within the natural uh, tunica, the casing, was a a bone, which was effectively a bone that had formed within scar tissue over a long period of time. And this bone would have been about six centimetres long and about two and a half centimetres wide as its maximum, shaped a little bit like an arrowhead. What? So so it wasn't just calcification, it was actual bone formation. it was actual bone. Yeah, that's right. And that bone bone was... Yeah. Yeah, and that's not unusual. Bone can form, wow. it's what's called dystrophic ossification, and it occurs in unusual situations. Burns victims can get it, for example, in bad scars. Um, but it can also form in, um, you know, you hear about guys getting a corked thigh in footy or rugby. Yeah. And if that hematoma isn't treated properly and it doesn't break up, then the hematoma can eventually form into a fibrotic mass. And that fibrotic mass, if it's um, not able to be broken down can eventually just form into a calcified or even ossified mass and you can end up with a piece of bone. Is this like, the same um, process here. Yeah, is that like uh, stimulation of some stem cell which then it, um, yeah, it must develops be. Yeah, that's right. Bone. We're yeah, getting a little yeah, bit off often topic we'll here, find, that's what we, when, yeah, when people talk about yeah. stem cells, those are the cells which can form all different Lots types of, different things. of um, tissues. Yeah, um, yeah exactly right, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and so yeah, the solution for him was actually to dissect out or cut out that bone, and then replace it with a graft material that would heal much slower and without the same underlying problem. And um, yeah, so he had that that removed, and and that's sort of one other extreme. And then the other one is the guys who've just got a really severe curvature. For example, the horseshoe penis, where it, you know, when it's erect, it sort of goes out, comes back, and then touches back again. It sort of does a 180 degree. Yeah. Um, 
often with those guys when we have to operate because there's nothing else you can do for them um, what we can what we can do is we can combine a combination of releasing the scar tissue on the top and pinching some skin or tissue not not skin but the the casing if you like on the underside so you shorten it a little bit on the other side but you loosen and release it on the top side and that therefore allows you to get a penis that will be a bit will be significantly straighter albeit a bit shorter than what they had before but a lot of these guys don't care about the length as long as they've got a functional penis so long as it's long enough and if there yeah. is a concern about um too much shortening you can put grafts in can't you yeah we can graft them um grafting's a bit tricky though because you've got to in order to graft you've got to put something in that's not going to undergo the same process that the tissues there underwent which is fibrosis and scarring um, but that kind of leads us on to the principles that you have to apply after you've done something like a graft, and that is, again, going back to the stretching side of things. And there are some devices that we can use that allow you to do that surgery, but then very quickly afterwards get the patients onto a, a stretching program. So they're actually using a device to stretch the penis, which are, in addition to stretching the natural tissues, also stretches your graft material so in the hope that the, when it does heal, it doesn't heal contracted. That's the Restorex device? The Restorex is one device. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the Restorex. There's a couple on the market, but the Restorex is probably the one that's now being used more often because it does actually have quite good data supporting its use. Uh, developed by a, um, a urologist called Landon Trost at the Mayo Clinic in uh, the USA. And it's not just a stretching device because they've been around for a long time. Uh, this, is a, this is a stretching device that allows you to shape the penis whereas before you could only kind of like stretch it out in length um, using a, a cage system with pistons that allowed you to hold the end of the penis and sort of pull it away from the body uh, oh, but God. this uh, the, the Restorex is different Eddie's uh, like pulling some funny faces well, this, here it sounds like some sort of medieval talk show so when you when you said the stretching device I thought you because you talked earlier on um, a vacuum the device no, that's what I yeah think. vacuum pumps that, that's, that's not, right that's not what yeah. this is though. this is different than a vacuum pump. no that's right yeah, okay. vacuums are one thing. Then they have their role as well. But yeah. this is actually a specific physical stretching device that um, it's kind of like the rack for your penis, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but without without the spiky bits. And without mm. the, and so how, and do you keep it on? Well, I mean, how, so what would be a regime, a normal regime for the Restorex? Yeah, the good thing about the Restorex is because it's stretching, but also. It's not just stretching it in length. You can also mould it or bend it yeah. against the natural curvature of the penis. So if you've got a penis that bends up, yeah. you can stretch it and then bend it in the opposite direction when it's flaccid yeah. so that you're putting maximum pressure on the contracted side. Yeah. And so you only need to wear it. The trials that were done suggested that 30 minutes a day hmm. for 12 weeks was effective. And so I say to guys, put it on before you go to bed and just before you're sort of ready to go to sleep, you take it off. And I said, don't worry if you forget, because most of the time what happens is if you forget and you've left it on, um, once you go through your sleep cycles, once you get into REM sleep, you'll have an erection. That's what most guys do. And if you get an erection when this thing's on, you wake up because it becomes a bit uncomfortable because it's pulling against the mechanism. But it doesn't do any harm or hurt you, and you just take it off if that's the case. Well, th this begs the question, do you, do you ever get anyone who doesn't present with the Pironi's disease asking about Restorex. Is that, does that, has that ever happen? Ah, uh, yeah. So, in other words, they just want a bigger penis. Well, I mean, I just, I, I was just sort of <laughs> doing He's the logic. He's asking for a friend. I'm, it's just doing the logic myself. And I thought, <laughs> well, okay. 
Does that presumably that would happen? Yeah. Well, the short answer is yes. Okay. Uh, it does. It, you can you can stretch a normal penis. You can stretch a normal penis either using a vacuum pump or using something like a traction device like the RestoreX, and you will probably get some improvement in length of maybe you know one to two centimeters depending on how much you use it but we are not recommending it for that use correct and we take no responsibility <laughs> for that's a off-label indication from our point of view um it's certainly would very much off-label yeah we're, we're not we're not promoting restorex as as a penile lengthening device for yeah. people who are otherwise normal with normal with penis. normal penis i mean um, exactly right. you know, potentially if it was misused you could uh cause um damage to the yeah. the fibrous you know coat of the penis and yeah um yeah Num- uh, numbness, numbness and uh, damage yeah. to the end of the penis the neuro- yeah, exactly right yeah, yeah. that's right the nerves and the vessels so you know all of this yeah. um can potentially lead to trauma so they need to be used for the correct indication and and under supervision can we um, can we just, come, yeah, just absolutely just um you know those those four cases that you presented i mean what yeah. What, what were the prognosis? Is is that the right word? Prognosis. How, how do how do they go? Uh, how do they turn? How do they turn out? Well, oh, good. Yeah, really good. I mean, the the young guy with the implants, he's done really well. Okay. I think ten years down the track, I replaced it, and he's pretty happy with it. Wow. Um, the other guy with the bone in his penis, I mean, he's he's done really well, and yeah. he's early on, and and still, you know, a lot of these guys have a lot of recovery and rehab in terms of nerve sort of nerve stimulation to get back to normal because it's often a bit a bit uh, traumatized initially, but as a general rule, you know, the key to surgery for this sort of thing is doing the surgery at the right time for the right patient, for yeah. the right indication. Yeah, okay. That's, that's a, that's a good principle. But there's hope. There's hope from what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. You know, and, and often you'll get some unusual shapes. You might have a guy who, instead of having a bend, they might just have an hourglass deformity of the penis whereby the sides of the penis are contracted. So when they get an erection, the end of the penis is full, the base of the penis is full, but in between it's kind of hollowed out or, or sort of almost like a wearing a waistcoat. Yeah. And they they can sometimes require a different type of surgical correction to try and um, uh, correct that deformity. But it's still feasible. And um, the, the key goes back to making sure that these patients are on the right medications to ensure the correct environment to allow for the best healing and most effective uh, development of normal tissues as a result of scarring that don't contract again. So whatever you do, you're always trying to improve their erections and making sure that the tissues heal in the best possible way. Yeah. Now, Shane, there, you know, in, in recent years, and perhaps they might have fallen out of favour recently, but there has been um, talk about uh, injectable therapy to try and break yeah. up. Um, some of the scar tissue. Um, what sort of role does that yep. play these days? In Australia, unfortunately, a small role because of availability. If you look at it worldwide, though, uh, it's still quite a useful uh, de- uh, approach for those patients who've got a uh, simple uh, plaque that hasn't yet formed into dense scar tissue, whereby, for example, the situation where I had the guy with the bone um, so for those guys who've got a plaque that's causing a bend, then drugs like Zyaflex, which is a an enzyme that breaks down collagen bonds, they can be very useful. But the problem in Australia is that those drugs are so expensive because they're no longer listed. 
So to give you an idea, you know, you hear about drugs costing a lot of money for chemo, for immunotherapy, for strange cancers and stuff, but um, this is up there with it. It's about four treatments or four injections, which is what most men would need, and you're looking at between forty and $50,000 because each injection is about Ten grand plus all the other costs involved in providing it. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, the health funds don't cover it, and you know we're limited. and And it's a good drug, unfortunately, it works, but it's just so unaffordable. Yeah. And what are some of the risks with using it? Yeah, and you've got to be careful with it. it so what Zyflex is uh, is a an enzyme produced by flesh eating bugs. So in the ground, you have a particular bacteria called Clostridium histolyticum, which essentially means a Clostridium like botulism, Clostridium. Uh, But this one's called histolyticum because it actually breaks down protein. And the enzyme's called a collagenase because it actually breaks the bonds between collagen. So this is a bug that can break down meat and animal protein. And what they've done is extract it and isolate it and attenuate it so that it can be used as an injection into a collagen plaque. And if you think of a collagen plaque as a disorganized mass of collagen fibers that normally should be lined up alongside each other so that they can stretch in alignment, but in the plaque of Peyronie's disease, they're disorganized and they've essentially formed a knot. So if you inject into that with this drug, you can break up the crosslinks between all the collagen And then by using a stretching device and manually manipulating the penis, for example, with something like the Restorex, you're then moulding the scar that's there back into a more physiological and functional alignment, which means it can then do what it's supposed to do, which is stretch once the penis gets an erection. And so, of course, if you inject in the wrong spot, it's going to damage tissue elsewhere. So it's got to be injected into the plaque and only into the plaque. Otherwise, you can get bleeding. You can get really bad um, hematomas. You can get damage to healthy tunica tissue, which then becomes weak and might break. So you then have the problem of an area that can fracture. And it can also get into blood vessels, which means you can damage the blood vessels and potentially cause problems with what we call fistulas. Mm, so yeah. it's a, you've got to be careful with it. But if it's used properly, it's a good drug but it's the cost that really stops us from using it. Yeah, interesting consent process, wouldn't it be, uh, you say, sir, oh, yeah. I'm going to inject some flesh-eating bacteria into your penis <laughs> and it'll cost you $40,000. Keen? <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, inflatable penile prosthesis uh, sounds like a breeze compared to that, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. And, and look, um, I'm pretty... I mean, I've used it a fair bit when uh, I was able to, and I was actually quite happy with the results. It's, um, you know, done properly and done carefully, it, it works really well. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, it's it's sad, actually, because it's been taken off the market in Australia for commercial reasons. And that means we can't get it. Great. So um, if there is, like, say, m- milder, um, you know, cases uh, where there's just a bit of a deformity and perhaps it's causing a bit of discomfort either the patient or their partner. Is there any role yep. for um, penile fillers in that um, instance, you know, where you're just trying to smooth out the contour of the penis? Um, there's been talk about it, but it probably doesn't probably doesn't add much to the underlying um, problem in that if you've got, for example, say you've got a divot on the side of your penis and it and it and it curves off to that side. You could technically put a filler in there to change the shape of it, mm. but that filler is not going to provide any structural integrity to the penis, which means you're still going to have the 
the weakness at that point, the potential yeah. flexibility at that point that's going to make it susceptible. So yeah. I think fillers can unfortunately give the impression from a cosmetic point of view that it looks much better, but that's not what we're aiming for, is it? We're not aiming for cosmetic uh, cure, we're aiming for functional cure. Yeah. And that's really important. It's talking to patients about whatever it looks like, you've got to go back to how it functions. You may not like the way it looks, but if you and your partner are having sex and it's really good and you're enjoying it and you get to orgasm and your erection lasts long enough and neither of you saw, then that's what's meant to happen. Therefore, what are you trying to fix? Yeah. And so I think that's where it comes down to goals and expectations. It's really important. Yeah, I think um, the role of those fillers seems to be very much aimed at the uh, younger end of the the uh, yep. population where, you know, it's it's really they're quite obsessed about the outward appearance with and um, not so yep. much about the functional um, status. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, look, we've, what, what, talk, what types of operations? You've talked about um, plaque excisions, about, um, about plication where you're straightening it, um, and um, as, as we know, all, all surgery carries risks. So what should patients know about the potential risks associated with that, those types of surgeries? Well, maybe the best person to talk about would be to ask the question would be 80 and then I can answer his questions. So maybe 80 should ask me what he would be worried about if he was having an operation on his penis. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I'd, I'd want to know, you know, how long, how long am I likely to be out of action, I guess. from thought you are going to say something yep. else there. <laughs> <laughs> how long is it going to be afterwards? <laughs> well, I, I think that's probably something, you know, once, once you yep. sort of talk to me through, so the actual procedures and I've got a sense for the risk and, and, and the likely outcome. Like I think probably the first yep. thing I'd want to know is, well, how, how long am I going to be out of action, Doc? Yep. So I normally say to patients, you probably need to stay away from penetrative intercourse, which is where if you think about the forces that are acting on the penis during penetration, um, that's where most of the pressure is going to be on the, the, the healing components of the repair. Um, I normally say to guys about four weeks, but, okay, you know, if there's any bruising or swelling or, you know, anything that might prevent you from getting a full erection and being able to do it normally, then you might want to leave it a bit longer. And uh, I also say to patients that, you know, if you're going to get back into having penetrative intercourse, you probably shouldn't be doing doing it the way you did it when the accident first happened. You know, for example, if you know, your partner was sitting on top um, and that's when you fractured your penis, um, you know, maybe that's not a great position for you anymore and you need to think about that in terms of the forces that are acting on the penis. Less axial so loading. So I normally say, yeah, less axial loading, that's right. Or as, as one of our colleagues in Brazil uh, talks about, Torsional rigidity, which is really important in uh, in terms of how the penis stands up to pressures and forces acting on it. What else did you want to know, Eddie? Um, Come on, this is your big chance. This is my big chance. I think I think that's probably uh, probably the other thing is that you know once you know in this scenario where you've actually had the surgery, assuming assuming that I am sort of listening to your advice and not doing those things that I shouldn't be doing, is it is there a chance of it just coming back on its own? And having to go through the procedure again. Yeah. Um, there's a chance of it coming back, but the chance of you having to go through the same procedure again is actually not that high. And the reason for that is that 
the reason it probably comes back is because you're progressing along a pathway towards erectile um, dysfunction and failure. Okay. So what that means is that the underlying erection problem is going to get worse, which then puts you at risk of developing the problem again. So in the event that that happens a second time, then we've got to go back to principles and say, well, what's the reason for this? How do we fix it? Can we fix it? And then we need to look at other options. So I'll have a lot of guys who've had surgery who then start to notice erection problems becoming the main issue. So they just don't have a hard enough erection. And then we're talking about how do we fix that problem? So it's not so much the curvature that tends to be the issue. it's um, It's the erections. Some guys do get a recurrence, for example, if they've had a plication and the sutures break, then sometimes they can get a recurrence of it. But more often than not, they don't. Um, certainly not my experience. And I've had a few patients who've um, uh, had a sort of unsatisfactory correction for their liking, uh, which has necessitated a redo procedure. So it's not as though it's got worse or come back. It's simply not as good as that it needs to be for them to function. And I guess the thing about it is every time you operate in that area, you're going to potentially have the same set of risks to the blood vessels, the nerves, all those sorts of things. And and then there's those issues with sensation afterwards and swelling and scarring that might then have an effect on the skin and sensitivity, et cetera. And I suppose the two other things that um, we were always told to counsel patients about with the so-called Nesbitt's procedure or plication procedure, which patients are going to be concerned about, but they may ne- not necessarily bring up. One is penile shortening because um, yep. no guy wants wants that. Um, and yep. the other one, I guess, is is patient or partner discomfort or pain. So I think that's particularly yep. relevant to when you're using sutures and, um, you know, they, if they can feel yep. something afterwards, it's going to bother them. That's right, yeah, yeah. And so um, – some surgeons use absorbable sutures, but I tend to use non-absorbable type sutures that if they're correctly placed and you and you do the surgery correctly, you shouldn't get um, hard or sharp lumpiness within the penis when you've corrected it. Um, so if you do get that, those sutures can be removed if they're causing problems, but they often end up smoothing out. So they end up like little sort of ripples rather than being sharp sort of jagged sutures sticking out like nylon threads um and uh and shortening yes shortening is the big one because if the bend is really bad then application can't do it all on its own you end up taking too much to straighten it again so that's when i talk to patients about expectations and what they want and what i need to do and then it comes down to a discussion between us and them between you know surgeon and patient about you know what they would be satisfied with afterwards in terms of function because that's the critical thing yeah and sometimes you just need to put in a prosthesis yeah well that's right sometimes it's a case of we can fix it but you'll end up with a very short penis or we can put in a prosthesis and then we can you know we can allow the prosthesis to keep you your length that you have so and sometimes they agree to that because it actually is is achieving all the aims that they need yeah so all right. Well, we think we've covered most things to do with Peroni's disease and penile curvature, but are there any other things you think we should have covered, Eddie? Uh, just thinking, I, the only other question I would have is, you know, we talked about that medication. I can't remember the, the name of the medication, the flesh the flesh eating medication and, and how expensive it was. So, you know, 
it, you know, the kind of procedures you were talking about, Shane, are, those, are these kind of procedures that would ordinarily be covered by, you know, someone's health fund, you know, in terms of actually just getting at some sort of gauge in the cost? Because, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, that that sort of those procedures, those those that medication was about $40,000. Yeah. yeah, they are. So even though patients sometimes think that this type of surgery is cosmetic, it doesn't actually come in under cosmetic. It is covered by Medicare. Okay. So it is um, it is funded. So it can be done in the public or the private hospitals. Okay. Unfortunately, in the public hospital system, it's low priority because it's not cancer, it's not urgent surgery. Yeah. So it tends not to be done very often. Uh, but in the private system, it's uh, readily available. Um, okay. Health funds will cover the hospital costs, um, and uh, Medicare um, has an item number for most of the procedures that we do. One thing to think about with the Xyflex was, even though it is expensive, there's no reason why patients can't appeal to their health fund with respect to uh, special uh, um, assistance to purchase it. Um, and it's something that it does sometimes occur in terms of um, drugs and medication for some patients who've reached their limits both through Medicare as well as through their um, their health fund providing it. But um, it's it's not very often that they get the opportunity to do that. So maybe I can summarise just by um, saying that this is a condition which is, is fairly common, probably more common than we think. It um, can really affect men and their partners and the take-home message is that there are treatments available and they need to be tailored to each patient's situation and what their expectations are and what their goals of treatment are um but it's a it's an ever-evolving field isn't it shane i mean it's certainly um from when i started practice seems to be um you know uh, becoming a lot more nuanced and a lot more sophisticated in the way it's treated um absolutely yeah so what, what would your sort of take-home messages be to to patients who are listening i i think the most important thing is if you think there's a problem with the shape of your penis and you don't know if it's something that you need to have assessed, then talk to your doctor and get sent through to, referred through to a urologist. Because we know that treating this disease process early gives you the best chance of dealing with it and delaying treatment until such time as you've got severe deformity sort of limits your options a bit. And um, there is there is a percentage of patients who will respond quite well to those early treatments being instituted. And it's not just surgery, but, you know, that is available to those who need it. Um, but early treatment's really important. And, um, yeah, don't be embarrassed about it. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's no worse than any other condition uh, of, of function. You know, um, you know, women who for example, have breastfed whose, whose breast volume has decreased and they're really uncomfortable with the fact that they used to have nice boobs and then after breastfeeding, they, they don't. You know, for them, it's a natural thing to think about having a breast implant procedure because it's so accepted and women talk about it. And guys need to probably just take the same approach with something that's very personal and speak to their doctor and just say, look, you know, is this normal? That's great. Well, look, thanks very much, guys, for agreeing to talk about a touchy subject and um, one which is, um, you know, I think this type of podcast is going to be very, very valuable to patients out there who are 
concerned or embarrassed or, or worried about what's going on down below. So, um, look, thanks very much. And um, if you think of any questions or any um, things that we should have covered, we can always add them add them in later um, as an additional um, bit of audio. But um, Postscript. Postscript, yeah, post-production. Postscript. <laughs> but um, for now I say thank you and um, we'll sign off. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. The use of this information and the materials that link to this podcast are at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Anyone listening to this podcast with a medical condition should seek individual medical advice and should not use this podcast to delay treatment or disregard the information given to them by their health professional for treatment of their condition. The information used in this podcast should not be used as a substitute for expert medical opinion in any medico-legal proceedings. 